0: <laughs> Tyler, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dan. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So, for people who might not be familiar with you, maybe they haven't seen you on Instagram or anything like that, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the stuff that you're doing?
1: Sure. Well, I'm currently working as a sports physical therapist um, in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, And I have a background in strength and conditioning also. So I moved here from Columbus, Ohio, like about six months ago or so. And um, when I was in Columbus, I started working as like a strength and conditioning coach for a while um, and ended up getting hooked up with a couple of basketball teams in the area. So I worked with like a high school basketball team that was there and like a semi-pro basketball team that was there too. So after that, I got uh, going with some basketball players like individually for some strength training stuff um, while also kind of working still as a physical therapist. So kind of have two different background, career backgrounds going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you kind of, you kind of wore the hat of a strength coach and the hat of a physical therapist simultaneously, right?
1: Right, yeah.
0: And now it sounds like you're kind of doing both of them at the same time as well. Uh, in your current role is you kind of kind of blend the lines between strength and conditioning and physical therapy a little bit.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that like, it's less of a line than what a lot of people seem to think. Um, I feel like, you know, physical therapy and strength training are sort of just like this linear process. And, um, there's just a lot of times some physical therapy places that might not be set up as well to do more of the strength training stuff. So I'm fortunate enough to work in a facility that pretty much just looks like a strength training gym. So we get to pretty easily keep people around for a little while longer and sort of get into the more like end stage, higher level strength training stuff. So yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the way it should be for athletes. I mean, plain and simple, you know, you should never have to go through your rehab with some kind of guesswork of what is the next step? Or how do I get back to running? Or how do I get back into lifting heavy? Like you should be able to do all of that in one place. Um, and, you know, ultimately we think about some of the common injuries that you see as a result of sports like basketball, and they can be pretty debilitating, keep you out of the game for a while. So if you don't have the ability to load tissue and get back stronger than you previously were, uh, then you're really doing them a disservice at the end of the day, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, you've kind of got the unique blend as we talked about of working from a strength coach perspective and a PT perspective and now wearing both hats simultaneously. And as a result, I'm sure you've had to work around and help, you know, several basketball players address their injuries while being a PT, while being a strength coach, and now while doing both simultaneously. Um, so what kind of things do you typically see in the outpatient population from a basketball standpoint? I know we talked about this previously previously, on the podcast with John Gardner on what he sees with the Charlotte Hornets on a professional level. But how about for you with the high school level, the college level, what kind of stuff do you see there?
1: Well, you know, a lot of people know about ankle sprains in basketball. I feel like that's definitely one of the number one, like acute level injuries that we see, Um, as well as like, you know, ACL tears, MCL tears, stuff like that, like meniscus issues But I definitely see a lot of the sort of repetitive overuse uh, injuries too, especially with the high school level, because a lot of them are kind of just doing a lot of stuff um, with their sport. So they're playing, practicing every day. Some of them are practicing multiple times per day, not really taking days off during the week and potentially like overlapping sports too. So a lot of them will play two sports during the year, three sports during the year, Um, And they just really aren't getting any rest. So a lot of these like repetitive overuse injuries tend to trickle in when they're sort of in that situation. So I would say I definitely see a lot of like patellofemoral pain. So pain like right at the front of the knee. And then a lot of Achilles tendonitis too are the two big ones. So the occasional like shoulder rotator cuff issue, but mostly the lower extremity stuff with these basketball
0: players. So mostly lower extremity and outside of ankle sprain, mostly tendinopathy type things related to overuse and just lack of ability to manage load. Or is it is it not a load management thing? And is it more of like a under recovery monster? I mean, do you see people who aren't sleeping, not eating, that sort of thing? or?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's unfortunately a combination of all of those things. Um, You know, a lot of times I'll ask my athletes, like, what time did you go to sleep last night? And, you know, on a school night, they're going to bed at like two, three o'clock in the morning, getting up at like six o'clock in the morning. So really not sleeping a lot. Um, Some of them have gotten better with water and things like that. But definitely the dehydration, the nutrition aspect of it. There's just not a lot of like education amongst the young groups of people on how many calories they need to eat during the day and sort of like how to sustain themselves. So I would say like that combined with the underloading of, you know, the strength training stuff and the overloading of the sports specific stuff is getting them from multiple angles, I would say.
0: Gotcha. So kind of looking at this like a continuum, uh, you're seeing most of the athletes are missing the basic, what we'll call general physical preparation. They're missing their basic strength level stuff, their movement, vocabulary, movement, IQ work, and that sort of thing. And they're spending too much time in a highly specialized sports state. And they're also not spending enough time on the recovery type things like sleep, nutrition, all of that other thing. And I would assume as well, A lot of people, when we use the term recovery or, you know, that sort of thing, they think of things like massage guns and foam rollers, which are great, but unfortunately they don't do what eight hours of sleep does. They don't do what consuming enough protein does. Um, So it kind of sounds like you've got this like three headed monster of not doing enough uh, from a physical preparation and strength and conditioning standpoint, doing too much of a highly specialized sport. And then not doing enough to come back from it, Um, which that can be quite a bit to juggle, I would imagine, especially in an outpatient PT environment. And I mean, I, I even think about sports like baseball in the sense that, you know, at least we have attempts to manage load with the sport with things like a pitch count and that sort of thing. How do we manage load in a sport like basketball? I mean, is there like a shot tracker or anything like that?
1: I think a lot of it comes down to like how many minutes they're playing. So minutes per week that they're spending on the court and sort of like what those minutes look like too. So are you playing a game? Are you scrimmaging or is it more just getting shots up, running through the motions and things like that? Cause obviously, you know, that lower level stuff, like just going out and shooting um, is not necessarily gonna, tire them out as much as the other stuff obviously if you you know spend like five or six hours just shooting continuously that's probably not a good idea either but I would say you know the best way to kind of track it is sort of keeping track of like how many minutes they're playing um per week and things like that too but also just kind of tracking like how many off days they're taking so a lot of times these kids especially you know once AAU season starts up They'll be playing like two or three games, um, if not up to four games on the weekend. And this is happening like, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We're playing multiple games. Not much rest break in between. Sometimes your games are like 10 minutes apart and you got to be ready to jump straight into the next one. So it's just a lot of like minutes that they're getting on the court without much rest in between.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So high intensity high frequency, and a lack of time to recover. And kind of as you were talking there, I've come to the realization, you mentioned the term AAU. Basketball is no longer just a winter sport for most people in the high school, college age uh, bracket there. Basketball is really kind of becoming a year-round sport in a sense there, because now you've got travel teams that go all the time. So as a result, you never really... Get a break or get to step back and step away from the sport at all? Do you? Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and a lot of kids, you know, really kind of jump straight from the season in high school to the AAU stuff. Which you know, we know that at the end of these kids' seasons in high school, especially, that's when it tends to pick up. So they're playing a lot more of the tournament games. Those tend to be a lot more like high intensity, high stress. Um, you're tired from having completed the entire season, right? Like, we're running low on our energy. Um, and then not recovering from that and jumping straight into AAU, which is sort of like the same beast, right? So you're not going to practice as much during AAU, but you're definitely hitting these games and stuff on the weekends when you travel to the tournaments and stuff. So, um There's the same pressure to kind of like perform at a high level, too, because a lot of kids play the AAU to try to get exposure at the college level and stuff. So it's sort of become something that is viewed as required in the basketball world, along with most other sports, right? Like the club sport realm is picking up a lot um, and sort of like overemphasizing the, you know, in-season stuff at the high school level.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. And one of the things I found is you have these uh, individuals playing club sports and travel sports and that sort of thing. And then individuals playing school sports. And a lot of times those coaches are not the same. And a lot of times those coaches don't communicate with each other at all. Um, So, you know, you might have someone who does a certain warm up routine with their school coach or a certain thing with their school coach. And then they go to AAU and do something completely different or something like that. And there's just this lack of a common communication and lack of a common ground between what we're doing from a coaching standpoint and how these athletes are preparing to play the same exact sport. Um, and, you know, I think that lack of common language and even taking a step further, the lack of individualization from a warm-up standpoint is ultimately a bit of a disservice as well as How often do we watch athletes warm up, not just in basketball, but in any sport, and they start doing this, you know, flow of stretches and that sort of thing. And it's like, you know, I look at some of the female athletes I've treated, including basketball players, and I just look at some of the joint laxity and hypermobility that they display. I just kind of think to myself, you know, do we really want to stretch those and increase the amount of range of motion before a high impact activity like basketball? Um, You know, and then we wonder why we see something like an ankle sprain or why we see something like a tendinopathy where, you know, thinking about the ankle sprain, especially we're looking at a moment of instability where our muscles can't hold it. So our ligaments kick in. And it's like, you know, maybe those three or four minutes of ankle stretching that we did an ankle, you know, range of motion stuff to warm up for a sport that's high impact in nature should have been replaced with something more stability focused or stabilization focused, or maybe we should have, Given that athlete a more individualized warm-up than just, you know, everyone gets the same thing because, as I'm sure you've seen from both a strength uh, side of things and a PT side of things, every athlete presents slightly differently. No one's exactly the same as the other, even if they've had the same injuries.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's definitely common to you know, see a lot of the people, you know, on the sidelines before a game, sort of with a stretch band doing some stretches or foam rolling or using that massage gun that we had kind of talked about earlier. Um, And I definitely don't think that those things are going to be the thing to get them ready to play. Um, Some of it too is, you know, if you're used to foam rolling before a game, if that sort of relaxes you and is a part of your routine, then cool, we can keep that in your program. But like what you said, let's add in some more specific stuff to get, you know, all these other things going. Um, And I tell that to my athletes that I work with, you know, from a physical therapy standpoint. Okay, we know that, you know, you've had this ankle sprain, we need to do some stuff to get your ankle warmed up. So do these exercises, like try to squeeze them in before your game. Um, The trick with it is that it has to be like accessible and portable, right? So like they can't necessarily you know bring like little dumbbells with them or something but doing something like having them carry some little resistance bands and trying to figure out some exercises to do maybe with the resistance bands um is definitely a good thing too but yeah it definitely tends to be just the nature of especially AAU like if you go to an AAU tournament it tends to be very crowded there's lots of people um obviously you know there's a ton of teams, and there's only so many basketball courts. So people are, you know, waiting on the side. And a lot of times you see kids kind of just walking up and down the aisles, like trying to warm up in, you know, the walking areas too, which can be a little hairy. So I think doing something that they can, you know, sort of like stay in one spot, do a little like dynamic warm up type thing or some mobility exercises, like active mobility stuff would be good for them to learn how to do.
0: Have you seen have you done a lot of event coverage for basketball where you're kind of on the sidelines responding to things as they happen like that?
1: I've not done any of that.
0: Okay, all right I was gonna ask you what you kind of see acutely there. Um, but you know we as we're talking here we, we kind of hit the warm up point we kind of talked a little bit about some of the things you see. Um, So in addition to proper warm up, what all do you do? Like, say someone comes into you with a tendinopathy type presentation. I don't care if it's a patellar tendinopathy or an Achilles tendinopathy. What kind of things are you looking at? Because, you know, I hear people talk about eccentrics all the time and time under tension all the time. But, you know, there's never really been someone who comes on and talks about like, you know, how do we load a tendon, get it calmed down, get it stronger, and then progress all the way back to you know a high impact sport like basketball. So walk me through what one of your tendonopathy rehabs might look like here, Kylie.
1: So definitely starting off, you always assess like the level of irritability of the tendon, right? So some people it's gonna be pretty low irritability. Um say it's a patellar tendon issue. They might be able to squat with no pain, but as soon as they do a single leg squat, now we're starting to get a little uncomfortable. So, you know, in that situation, it would probably be good to do some like lunge isometric holds or something like that versus when it tends to be a little higher irritability doing you know your wall sits or staggered wall sits um, like isometric knee extension at like 90 degrees those sorts of things tend to be the things that get the irritability to go away in the beginning i would say but like even the concentric and eccentric exercises i've found those to not necessarily be a bad thing in the beginning also as long as we're managing like what the range is. So maybe we stay, you know, above or below the pain level with those um, and that feels okay. But yeah, I've definitely found that with like the patellar tendon issues, they tend to be a little bit more um, able to tolerate things compared to like the Achilles tendonitis. The Achilles tendonitis can sometimes be just like so debilitating on people to the point where they can't even do like a double leg heel raise without like excruciating pain. So in those situations, definitely trying to figure out how we're either going to do like an unloaded heel raise. So maybe like a seated one where you're not using your full body weight on the tendon um, or, you know, one where you have a band wrapped around your foot and you're just kind of like pointing your foot or something like that. Or again, some sort of like double leg isometric hold or things like that.
0: Right, right. And I'm sure that, you know, sometimes people can jump right into that and get rolling. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time. And, you know, that's the that's the uh, untold or unseen side of working with athletes, I'll say, is, you know, if you throw, uh, you know, any sports PT or whatever like that on Instagram, you're probably going to see all these Glamorous, uh, sexy looking exercises of all this cool stuff. Um, but unfortunately, there's usually a phase of working up to the cool stuff. And we're not always the best about showing those things because, believe it or not, four way ankle will sometimes get boring. Um, seated <laughs> calf raises sometimes get boring. Um, and they don't necessarily take an athlete the entire way. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that they don't play an important role in the process right you know if we didn't have a starting spot then how are we going to get the athlete to that point you know we're not gonna just sit there and ultrasound them and ice them until they you know calm down from a pain standpoint I think ultimately we really need to you know find an entry point and build that up while allowing things to cool off Um, and then once we cool off uh, then that's kind of like a golden window golden opportunity to you know, really uh, expand our movement and load capacity, I would say.
1: Yeah, I think that definitely having an understanding of when to progress and when to sort of like sit and like stay at the same level for a little while longer is a skill that, you know, a lot of physical therapists tend to um, want to progress things more quickly than maybe what the athlete can tolerate for the sake of like what you said, not wanting to sit there and watch them do their ankle exercises a bunch of times and things like that. But sometimes you do get athletes who are pretty good at doing their home exercises and stuff. So if I know without a doubt that they've done these things on their own and they've said they've done it earlier in the day and we're progressing like range of motion wise, we might skip it, you know, for a couple sessions in the beginning to progress to like other things. But Um, yeah a lot of what we do as sports physical therapists is not necessarily like shiny and cool Um, it's just a lot of like building the foundations back and making sure that we do a really good job at you know getting the low-hanging fruit so to speak so whatever is not working let's really hit that until it's working again and then we can start to progress back to you know are maybe slightly more fancy exercises that people like to be doing anyways.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Now, you know, say one of these um, tendinopathies comes in to see you from a PT standpoint, and, you know, they've, they've come in pretty hot before they've, they've come in pretty flared up, irritated, pissed off, whatever term you want to throw at it. Uh, What do you kind of look to do to calm them down a little bit as far as a pain control standpoint? Is there a certain kind of thing that you like to go to, to kind of help calm it down and get to that process of progressive loading quicker, or what kind of things are you looking at to help from kind of like that pain management standpoint?
1: Um, definitely doing a little bit of like soft tissue, I think sometimes helps, you know, the research may or may not be there to support the soft tissue, but I definitely think that you get like at the bare minimum, a decent like placebo effect. Um, when you do stuff like that so just you know the athlete knowing that okay my whatever it is my ankles flared up, my knees flared up and you know they have their hands on my ankle and on my knee sort of helping to get it back to where it needs to be is a good starting place because a lot of times they're gonna be you know maybe a little frustrated when they come in and a little annoyed that things are, you know, as bad as they are because they've probably been putting in a lot of work up to that point to decrease the pain. So whenever we have a flare up, it can be frustrating um, on the athletes and on us really. But, um, and then after that, you know, just sort of doing like some light range of motion exercises, like what you said, not necessarily anything cute, but just making sure that we can move it how we need to move it. Um, and then again, just really hitting the isometrics. So. I feel like anytime that there is a huge flare up or something like that, the isometrics tend to leave them feeling a little bit better than the eccentric, concentric, because you're still getting, you know, a little bit of um, blood flowing to the muscle, you're still using the muscle a little bit, but we're just kind of not using it to the point where we're trying to like, you know, cause hypertrophy or things like that. We're just trying to calm the pain down a bit.
0: Yeah, not to mention there's even some analgesic effects that come with isometric loading and some beneficial effects from a uh, microcirculation standpoint as, w- as well. Uh, so I completely echo your point there. From a soft tissue standpoint here, Kylie, is there certain interventions that you like to go to or are you pretty much just kind of a hands-on person when it comes to soft tissue work at the ankle?
1: Um, I like hands-on stuff. I feel like it's nice to be able to like actually feel what's going on and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, hands-on stuff, hands-on stretching and stuff like that.
0: Okay. Yeah, I got you. It seems like everyone's kind of got their preference when it comes to that stuff, right? Some people, they really like, you know, using tools like, hey, I like A-Stim or I like I-Stim or I'm more of a grasping technique person. Um, so it's always kind of interesting for me to hear what other people are using because it seems like a lot of different people use uh, a lot of different uh, techniques when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, so we kind of talked about that initial phase. We're really focusing on the Achilles at this point, but I'd imagine similar stuff at the knee, right? You know, we do a little soft tissue work to keep it calmed down and hopefully feeling a little bit better. We ISO load within tolerance, whether that's open chain or closed chain. And we make sure that the range of motion Uh, Sticks around. And oddly enough, you know, typically when I've seen patellar tendinopathy type stuff, or I'll even throw PFPS in there, I almost never see or very rarely see the knee range of motion being the issue. The knee usually has decent flexion, extension, range of motion. Uh, However, I would say that usually I see some limitations down at the foot and ankle, or occasionally up at the hip as well. Um, you know, especially in the uh, more of the male athletes than the female athletes, do you typically see something similar there when you're working with athletes who uh, are presenting with like that patellar type stuff in basketball?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I feel like um, the majority of basketball players that I worked with tend to lack, you know a decent amount of hip flexion, um hip internal rotation a little bit of external rotation, but those are usually like the main two that just are not moving very well. Um, Hamstrings are sometimes kind of tight too, Um, but yeah, and occasionally you'll get, you know, all types of foot appearances. So some of them might have pretty flat feet. Um, Some of them might have, you know, a pretty good lack of like the closed chain dorsiflexion, which obviously for high level athletes that can be a pretty serious issue because if you can't get your knee over your toes very effectively, you're gonna start you know angering some other spots and potentially your knee or even your hip or your low back might be at risk because of those things. but
0: yeah, I was gonna say if you if you've watched basketball players play, I mean how often, Do you see people go with like, we'll call it a knee dominant strategy where that knee moves forward quite a bit versus the hip dominant strategy? Do you you see any kind of correlation between how they play and what you see them for in the clinic at all?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say the majority of basketball players tend to be like fairly quad dominant Um, and they tend to have obviously very long femurs too. So sort of like the leg length differences in basketball players versus some other athletes, um, I think can contribute to some of that knee pain that you're seeing too, right? Like it's a very long limb that you have to have control of. And there's lots of like external factors happening around this like longer lever arm. Um, So sometimes it can make it more difficult for them to move and produce forces. And it just makes it even more important for them to do strength training and stuff to kind of like learn to gain control of their limbs and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. So kind of walking through our stages here on ten- tendinopathies, we kind of hit that early stage pretty well. What, ha- what happens when we get into that mid stage and how do we progress someone from mid sta- from early stage to mid stage? You know, is there certain things that you look for or certain signs that tell you, hey, this person's ready? And where do we start in that mid stage rehab? Do you, you know, do you go more from like a specific loading to certain muscle groups? Or do you just kind of load everything? Or what kind of things do you look at there in mid stage?
1: I would say you know a lot of times the quad tends to be something that uh is one of the contributing factors but every athlete is a little bit different so um at my clinic at least we use a machine called a tindex to measure their quad and like calculate the torque of the quad Um, so if they're not operating at like about 2.8 on the torque we know that that's you know puts them more at risk of injuries and pain and things like that. So that's definitely like a measurement that we get in our clinic Um, and, you know, sort of assessing like the hip strength, stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of times in basketball players, they need to be able to move laterally very well. So we need to make sure that those hip abductors are, you know, strong, first of all, um, and, able to translate that strength more so into explosiveness um so yeah starting at the middle stage i would say addressing whatever muscular deficits they seem to have in more of like a closed chain way so progressing from the open chain stuff that we were doing in the beginning to now loading things a little bit more closed chain
0: Now, when you start to go into that closed chain environment, I'd imagine you're starting pretty unloaded and then progressively loading from there. Or do you tend to do more of like a control approach or how do you kind of progress through that closed chain environment? Because flipping from open chain to closed chain can certainly be a pretty big shift all of a sudden
1: right yeah i would say that um some of the athletes really don't have a lot of experience with like strength training and stuff like that so for those ones i usually start with no weight just kind of working on and making sure their form is good and making sure they can do a lunge how i want them to do a lunge and feel it like in the right muscles making sure our squat is looking okay but if they have um if they're on a strength training program or they're a little bit more on the stronger side, definitely, you know, jumping into some weighted stuff, but just using maybe a little bit more of a controlled range. So lunges, for example, I like to start off with like a split squat. So just kind of in a lunge position, but going up and down instead of going forwards and backwards or like a walking lunge, tends to be a little bit more tolerable in the beginning. Um, when you're first starting to like reintroduce some resistance into their program.
0: Gotcha, interesting. So starting with kind of like a isolated, closed chain compound, and then progressing into the point where you're adding other factors. Um, And do those other factors typically, do you go right for the load or do you go right for like the, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, we'll call it the wacky and weird stuff, right? Do we go right for like, the i'm gonna add dumbbells kettlebells barbells or are we more of the i'm gonna add a band pulling this way or i'm gonna add an unstable surface or i'm gonna alter their um you know their the uh, proprioceptive input by changing how much their foot is in contact in the ground with something like a heel float um what kind of things do you look at when you start to progress them or what's kind of your methodology behind your progression of that closed chain
1: yeah, you know, I personally go for straight to the load stuff because um, a lot of times that tends to be the issue is that they, you know, their muscles and their tendons aren't, uh, the capacity of the muscles and tendons aren't quite meeting the load that they need outside of physical therapy. So we need to kind of like increase the tissue capacity by introducing some resistance training, um, some higher level like strength training stuff. Um, I like to sort of supplement it with the other things that you were talking about. So more so just as like a rest break in between these other things. So like, okay, we just hit some heavy Bulgarian split squats. Let's, you know, slow it down a little bit and do maybe a little bit more um, neuromotor sort of stuff in between.
0: So, how do you go about overloading from a strength standpoint without flaring up an already existing tendinopathy? What's kind of the best way to balance that?
1: Just making sure that we're not hitting the same weight that they were using before they came in. So if they know, you know, okay, I've previously squatted at 135 pounds. Um, let's try to squat today, starting at like 95 or even lighter than that. Like we always start, you know, unloaded with no weight, progress them to using the bar, make sure that they can do it with the 45 pounds. If that feels good, then, uh, okay, let's try to like push it a little bit with the resistance, but keeping it below where we know you were.
0: You know, from that mid-stage standpoint, it sounds like our main goal is really rebuilding strength. And you mentioned that you use 10-deck devices to monitor, you know, to monitor hamstring quad ratio and that sort of thing. Uh, you kind of start to build things back up from an overload standpoint. And we start to introduce some various elements of overall movement control and motor control through the pattern and during that time, we're really closely monitoring you know the matter of we need to make sure things stay calmed down. we don't want to flare them up again um you know, walking through that early stage and mid stage process from the tendinopathy standpoint, typically, how long does it take for you to get you know one of these flared up achilles tendinopathies or patellar tendinopathies calm down and then to the point where we're through early and mid stage rehab is this like a you know, two week thing or a two month thing, or what's the typical turnaround time here?
1: If they're not resting from their sport and sort of still going like full blow, which sometimes athletes choose to do that um, simply because, you know, maybe they think that they need to be continuing to do all of that, you know, to get offers from colleges, or maybe it's an important season they have coming up. Um, so we definitely have athletes who choose not to, uh, pull back on any of their stuff with their sport. Those guys take quite a few months to get back on track because you're never really giving it time to rest. Um, but athletes who, you know, have rested from say maybe scrimmaging and practicing Um, they might be going to practices and like running through, you know, some stuff, but not like doing the full contact scrimmaging and their games. Um, I would say like about, you know, four weeks or so to get through the initial phase of, uh, you know, high to moderate irritability to uh, the middle stage stuff. But um, again, some kids will move faster too. I mean, I've had a couple of people who really after a couple of weeks of resting, they were feeling totally fine. Pain was gone. um, And they were ready to just kind of keep going
0: from a load perspective. Um, Would you say that there's quite a bit of value then in being able to step back from the sport for a week or two and hit the PT side of things based on what you're saying?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And that tends to be like one of the tougher conversations that we have with people, um, because a lot of times, you know, everyone gets in that go mode, right? Like everyone wants to press on the gas. They want to practice as much as possible. They feel like if they're not continuing to practice, they are losing progress or falling behind their, you know, peers and competition and things like that. Maybe their coach will look down on them. There's all these factors that play into, you know, the psyche of not wanting to take time off from your sport. But I've definitely found that in order for it to go away uh, more quickly, we really need them to be like full resting from the higher level stuff Um, if it's a priority to kind of like get this to go away as fast as possible. So and again, it's resting from, you know, maybe like higher level sprints and the games and things like that, but not resting from loading the tendon. So we're still doing what we need to do in physical therapy. They still have their home exercises and things like that.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Um. So how I, I, I completely agree with you. I think that there's t- a time and value in place for athletes to step back temporarily and look at the bigger picture. But, you know, to your point, I do find that quite often a lot of athletes are very hesitant or reluctant to do that, especially if they're in season. Um, and, you know, kind of like you mentioned, we can still work through it with them in season. It's just occasionally significantly more difficult to do that. Um, now kind of hitting, we we talked about a lot of different PT considerations up until mid stage, but you've worked with a lot of these athletes as a strength coach as well. So how do you kind of connect what you've done from a strength and conditioning standpoint to the PT side, right? Obviously we hit the overload principle, but What other things do you see um, more on the strength and conditioning side during this process than just wearing the PT hat alone?
1: I think, you know, having a good understanding of like sets and reps and things like that, like the strength training tends to focus on, you know, muscle hypertrophy, building power, building explosiveness and that sort of thing. Um, And, you know. While in physical therapy, in the initial stages, our goal definitely is not muscle hypertrophy. Once we get more towards like the mid to late stages, you sort of use those concepts to overload the tissue. So, like, even though our goal might not be to, you know, have them have massive quads and big legs or something like that, we do want them to be like functionally strong. So using the same principles to, Get them where they need to be and then progressing them at the end stages, too, to more of the power exercises. um, You know, maybe stuff using medicine balls, the jumping, the change of direction, stuff like that.
0: How does the power play into the tendinopathy? How does increasing an athlete's power output kind of help with that tendinopathy long term?
1: Yeah. I mean, being able to produce power is something that you use during your games and things like that. So it falls into the bucket of like higher level stuff, right, along with change of direction, jumping, and that sort of thing. Um, So if your body doesn't have the ability to produce power and you're trying to push it, you know, and move quickly and do all these sorts of things um, that could put you at risk of more of an injury again. Um, but you know, you also need a good strength pow- foundation in order to have power in the first place. So I definitely wouldn't say that it's something that I do with all of my athletes, but maybe the more higher level ones or the ones that have a little bit more of like a strength training background, like they've worked with strength coaches, they have someone that they see on the side, um, and those kids.
0: Yeah, definitely. And even taking a step further here, kind of like we mentioned earlier, there seems to be a lack of just general preparation for physical movement in, you know, today's day and age is we have people doing highly specialized sports, but they're missing the basic, you know, uh, box squat, um, you know, jump, uh, depth jump, that sort of thing. And I think that the more you can expose someone to different training stimuli, especially those that match the demands of the sport, the better off they're going to be when they do return and go back. And, you know, as you mentioned a few times their basketball is a very fast paced sport. And it involves a lot of jumping, a lot of lateral movements, and a lot of quick short sprints. And when we think about the, the ways we typically train power development, we typically look at jumping or hopping variations, we typically look at Some kind of fast, explosive, quick movements, right? So if that's what the sport demands and I can do those things in physical therapy to help my athlete when they return to that sport, then I feel like I'm almost doing them a disservice if I don't hit those things or don't, you know, throw that into the picture because plain and simple, we need to move fast in the sport and we need to move in all kinds of different variations and varieties of ways. And, you know, unfortunately, even though we train jumps and lands almost identically in, you know, a training standpoint, when we look at the field and the game, uh, you know, people jump off weird positions and they land in weird positions a lot of times. So ultimately, if we don't uh, prepare them for it, Uh, Then how do we know they're going to be successful and I think that's really where we kind of come into with a late stage of rehab is, you know, ultimately, our work isn't done just because the pain subsided, our work isn't done just because, you know, this is a stronger tendon than when we first got it or they're stronger from a muscular standpoint than when we first saw them is ultimately our goal should be look we need to build this thing up so good that I don't ever want them to come back for the same issue again. Uh, You know, can we get ahead of things and kind of break the chronic nature that we see with so many of these tendinopathies?
1: Yeah, and I think even just what you said um, answers the question of how does strength conditioning play a role in physical therapy, right? Like it's going above and beyond to address more than just like the minimal level of stuff to then make sure that they don't re-injure themselves um, because of a similar issue or on the same, you know, lower extremity. Um, But yeah, even just doing something as simple as like single leg strengthening or single leg jumps and landing can make a huge difference in an athlete's um, injury prevention bucket and sort of managing aches and pains and stuff like that, too. So there's a lot of like typical strength training programs where they stick to more the double leg stuff. So deadlifts, squatting, Um, You know, they might be doing the power stuff like cleans and things like that, but not always a ton of the single leg strengthening. So I think that having that be a huge emphasis in physical therapy is something that uh, is a difference maker in the athletes in terms of preventing additional further injuries and aches and pains.
0: Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, plain and simple. I don't know who came up with the term, but most physical therapy that I've seen um, uses the term prior level of function. And that has to be just our biggest bullcrap phrase I've ever heard because plain and simple, where they were a month ago or two months ago or wherever they were before they came and saw you wasn't good enough to prevent injury. So why are we gonna get them back to that point? Why are we not going to exceed and move beyond that point so that they don't come back and see us again? I mean, you know, plain and simple, I would love if we got to a point where I never had to rehab another ACL tear because they just don't happen. I'd love to get to the point where I never have to rehab another Achilles rupture because, you know, no one ever develops chronic tendinopathy and the tendon doesn't go through changes and that sort of thing. But unfortunately, we've just been caught in the cycle of, ah, just get them back to where they were. Um, so really, I think it takes outpatient clinics and outpatient clinicians such as yourself who are willing to look at things and say, look, where you were before wasn't good enough. We need to move beyond that and exceed that point. Um, And I just, I don't quite understand why as a profession, we've just kind of settled for where we were before and not where we need to be, which is beyond that. Um, And that's unfortunately one of those hypothetical, no good answer questions. Um, It's just kind of food for thought. Um, you know, on the plyo side as well there, Kylie, uh, what kind of variations do you like to work on with the athletes that you're working with in that end stage phase? Because plyo is kind of a general catch-all kind of term for anything from jumping to landing to force absorption. So what kind of things do you like to work on? Or are there any kind of specific unique variations that you've kind of developed with people uh, to kind of hit that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most beneficial types of jumps that I learned, I remember, you know, learning about it during one of my physical therapy internships even, was just the variations on jumping off one leg, landing on two, or jumping off two legs, landing on one, as kind of the bridge between the double leg to single leg plyometrics. Um, And just doing as many different variations of that as you can is... uh, something that I've found lets you really break down the single leg jumps into either the jumping component or the landing component and sort of hit what you want to hit with that um, and get really specific with their form or their technique or things like that um, prior to going into like full-on single leg jumps but after they've kind of mastered that progress to some single leg jumping I definitely like to do you know more like continuous stuff so maybe like some single leg pogo jumps into like a vertical jump or maybe like you know triple hop whether it's on one leg or two legs um so some stuff where they have to combine multiple jumps together um in order to sort of mimic like things they do in their sport where you have to do multiple big movements back to back to get somewhere
0: yeah and I would assume that unless you've played the sport yourself or you watch the sport regularly it would be kind of difficult to program that phase if you don't know kind of what the sport entails yourself correct
1: oh yeah for sure I mean I feel like um understanding you know how the movements happen and you know like which direction you need to go like are you rotating this way or are you rotating this way um yeah definitely having a good movement understanding of the sport is essential so oh. but a lot to like sports when i treat people that you know play a sport that i didn't play um just asking them like, okay, like what, you know, what's a movement that you might have to do or something like that? Or if you have to move laterally, how would that look? So a lot of times the kids can sort of like give you guidance on things if you don't 100% know what's going on, right? Because it's tough to like sit down and break down every single sport at every single level. So yeah,
0: yeah, definitely is. And you know, we none of us have all the time in the day, unfortunately. Um, I've actually found a lot of benefit myself from even just connecting with the coaches of some of these athletes and kind of saying like, hey, what's your practice structure look like? You know, hey, this kid's a point guard or this kid's a power forward, you know, what kind of things do they need to do uh, to function well in your system? Because, you know, plain and simple uh, sh- uh, shooting guard or a small forward or whatever position might have a very different job based on how the coach runs their system offensively, defensively, whatever. So even just taking it a step further and saying like, look, I'll jump on a 15 minute phone call with the coach. Now I can eliminate my guesswork and I can really get a good understanding of what they have to do from their position. And I guess that kind of leads me into my last point is how do you kind of program your strength and conditioning stuff based on position? You know, do you look at a shooting guard differently than a point guard or a point guard differently than a power forward or what kind of differences come into play when we start to think about positions and I'll even say differences in gender do you kind of program differently based on a male basketball player or a female basketball player or are things pretty much identical throughout
1: oh yeah I definitely would say there's some pretty big differences um even position to position right so like you know, your shooting guard and your point guard, everyone really needs to be quick, right? So quickness, shiftiness, quick on your feet, able to change directions, sort of universal amongst everybody. But I would say, you know, your point guard and your shooting guards, obviously like size wise, everyone looks a little bit different too. So um, I would say, you know, just doing some general like full body strengthening with them tends to be um, beneficial but you know the forwards tend to be a little bit more like power driven they need to be able to drive to the basket they need to be very explosive um and they tend to be a little bit bigger too so sometimes they fall into the category of like sometimes it's hard to get them doing you know full weight lifting like you're never gonna get a guy that's six seven to squat you know all the way down or that sort of thing so sort of understanding like how their body type plays into um what you're gonna do and what their form is gonna look like when they're lifting because basketball players you know they definitely tend to look a little different than the other sports like football for example well they you know are a little bit more like biomechanically balanced in their limbs and things like that like they're still tall but you know not quite as big as these like six, seven, six, eight, six, nine people who just, you know, struggle to squat all the way down. And when they deadlift their femurs are so long that their knees kind of like shoot forward a lot. So, um, but definitely, you know, male to female, I would say a lot of the female basketball players that I work with, um, or just female athletes in general tend to not have as good of a background with strength training. Um, either they haven't done it at all, or they're like super serious, super focused, have started doing it when they were like in middle school and are doing it better than like anybody. So definitely like one of those two categories. Um, So a lot of times there, you know, it's just a lot of education on how this can benefit you. um, And, you know, running through the form and things like that, because there's definitely a lot of like, knee valgus, um, you know, foot pronation, stuff like that happening in the girls basketball realm. Um, And there's definitely a lot of ACL tears amongst female athletes in general, too. So, you know, the research isn't necessarily super concrete on what's causing those things. But starting with, you know, just a simple strength training program is definitely beneficial.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have the uh, holy grail figured out yet of how can we prevent every ACL tear from happening or every injury from happening. But if there's one thing we know, it's that stronger athletes who have been more exposed to different training variables, training factors uh, seem to have a decreased incidence. Um, And, you know, there's certain things we can prevent and certain things we can't prevent, right? You know, if we're talking like, uh, hypothetically, a sport like football, I can't control whether or not a 270-pound defensive player decides to put his helmet into your knee. Um, you know, there's certain things that we just can't prepare you for. Um, but I completely agree that in general, uh, you know, the more we can prepare someone for their sport, typically the better they do. And I love the points that you brought up on the differences between male and female is there's certainly some different considerations from just an overall joint laxity standpoint to even concepts like the Q angle and playing into a knee valgus type position. Um, and ultimately, those things just vary so much person to person. I mean, I've seen females who are just very predisposed to valgus. And I've also seen females that just have a great, you know, McConnell alignment. And you know, I don't necessarily think that all valgus is bad. And I don't think all valgus should be avoided. Um, I just really don't like it when it's a uncontrolled movement that we continuously drop into because we have deficits elsewhere.
1: Yeah. A lot of basketball players too. I mean, they just, you know, they have a lot of knee valgus when they shoot their knees go in, when they accelerate their knees go in on the male and the female side. So I totally agree. Not everyone who is moving in that way gets injured. However, I've definitely seen quite a few people, you know, who have had multiple serious, you know, lower extremity injuries back to back come into the clinic with also a significant amount of knee valgus. So, yeah, it's definitely one of those like hotly debated topics right now.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and it's one of those things that we just we, we need to accept that we don't have the best answer yet. You know, like we don't know all the ins and outs of it um and you know there's even debates on why it's happening is it a foot issue is it an ankle issue is it a hip issue is it all of the above is it something completely different um and ultimately we just again we need to accept what we know and what we can control and accept what we don't know um and I think that the more honest and open we are about that with our patients and other providers I think the better the conversation goes because otherwise You know, we do, I I have seen people get in these heated debates on stuff like this. And ultimately, (laughs) that doesn't move the needle forward. You know, if we just can't sit, if we can't sit down and learn from each other, then we're not improving anywhere if we just kind of argue over the little things like that, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, and it seems silly to assume that like, any one thing would be the situation for every single athlete of different genders, different sizes, different sports, different levels. Um, so yeah, I mean I think having an open mind and approaching it from, you know the guise of, okay, maybe I don't know everything, but here's what I do know, here's what I've seen and here's what we can try is at least a good place to start. So while also considering you know everyone individually and coming up with maybe a slightly different plan for person to person,
0: if only it was as simple as just do this one thing and then we're all good. If only it was that easy. I know that's what everyone looks for, but um, you know, Kylie, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks here uh, as we kind of wrap up here today?
1: Um, I just really appreciate you having me and thanks for taking the time for uh, yeah, hearing me out about some basketball stuff. So it's always good to talk basketball and physical therapy
0: if people want to find you online, whether that's Instagram or whatever that way, where can they find you at? Where are you at online?
1: So I have an Instagram account and I have a TikTok account and they both are um, Kinda Sporty Kylie. So K-I-N-D-A Sporty Kylie.
0: What, What was the inspiration for Kinda Sporty? (laughs)
1: I just thought it was a little bit more subtle than, um, Hey, look at my cool Instagram account.
0: (laughs) For sure. For sure. Kylie appreciate your time. It was great having you on today.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe. So you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.